You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Tell someone the title of my sermon tonight, A Cry for Peace. A Cry for Peace. Well, I thank God for this opportunity to share tonight as we continue our Advent series. It's been a while since I've been up here. Uh, It's been quite some time, actually, and I think that's a testament to uh, Pastor Ian's faithfulness in preaching the scriptures. Sure, as lay elders, once in a while, we'll come up here to support, but week in and week out, your lead pastor, with the grace of God, is setting the spiritual direction from the pulpit, sharing faithfully week to week what God is communicating to his church. Amen? So praise God for that. Continue to pray for your, your, you know, your pastor. Pray for Pastor Ian and his family as they continue to serve the local church faithfully. Now, in this Advent season, we are looking at the themes of Advent and how the birth of Jesus gives us access to these promises. That really is the hope of Advent and Christmas, that God has done something in Christ that changes absolutely everything. For this series of messages so far, we've been looking at scriptures that not necessarily uh, seem like they connect with the Christmas story, but the connection, however, is that God has promises for better days, promises that we will eventually find fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This week, we're going to look at what the prophet Micah has to say about the coming days of Christ. And Also in this season leading up to Christmas, right, this Advent season and the peace that it brings, it's my prayer and desire that we as a church would truly prepare our hearts and our minds to focus on Christ. Not because we are commanded to or this is some kind of, you know, mandatory Protestant tradition of Advent that we need to participate in as Christians, but because... As a church, we recognize the importance, we, we, we recognize you know, the, the excellent reminder of what this season is truly about. And so preparing our hearts for Christmas can take on many forms. It can be lighting candles, it can be listening to worship songs, whether you're, in the, you're, you're at home or you're in the car. Never in all of history do we have the kind of access to music today than we ever did. Now the problem isn't whether we have access to music. The problem is, you know, what should I listen to? There's way too many options. And so, you know, that's a good thing. That's a good problem to have. We need to make sure that we are listening to songs that are theologically accurate. And so if you are having trouble finding, you know, good Christmas worship songs that you should be listening to, I mean, we have... Uh, people here that can show you. Speak to Elder Joel. I'm sure he will be able to give you some great suggestions on, on worship songs. I mean, personally, I really like, uh, you know, Phil Wickham's uh, Christmas album from, from 2019. I think, you know, it's beautiful. It has all the, you know, the traditional Christmas hymns, and then, you know, it has a little bit of that modern charm. So, Yes, listening to worship songs can prepare our hearts for Christmas. Another way we can prepare our hearts for Christmas is through prayer, and that can even take on the form of fasting, right? Putting all distractions aside, taking our things off, our eyes off the things of this world and putting it completely on God. 
Again, not because it's required of us, but it can be beneficial for us as Christians. Advent should be seen as a time where we prepare our hearts for Christmas and for the eventual return of Christ and the judgment that he will bring to this world. It's a time of, again, drawing ourselves closer to God, not closer to this world. And you may ask, but, you know, Elder Benji, can't I still, like, enjoy the festivities of the season and, and, and still focus on God? Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. No one's saying that we cannot participate in those things. We just need to make sure we have our hearts in the right place. We can become so focused on the aesthetics of Christmas and the feelings and, you know, the lights, the decorations, the food, the smells, and the gifts, and we, we lose sight of the reason we celebrate Christmas in the first place. And I'm, I'm guilty of this too. I get caught up and drawn to the holiday itself instead of Christ himself. Now, we don't need to be dogmatic about it, but in the back of your mind, let your motivation be God. Let your motivation in all things, including Christmas, be Jesus. So as we learned last weekend, he is our hope. And we're going to learn tonight that he is also our peace. Matter of fact, Micah refers to Jesus as the ruler of peace. We have other prophets like Isaiah that refer to Jesus as the prince of peace. Yet this kind of peace that he brings is not necessarily what you and I would think peace means, right? When we see peace on earth during Christmas time, right? Those slogans that we see. There are other slogans that advocate for world peace. There are a number of different things and conflicts that we have in the world today, and there are a number of different kinds of peace that we need in the world today. And so peace on earth may not necessarily be the peace that you're thinking of. Peace on earth may sound abstract. It may sound distant. It may sound like it's not likely. Many would scoff at that statement, peace on earth. It sounds like something out of a fairy tale, am I right? something that wouldn't happen in our lifetime, especially in a day and age where there is so much conflict and divide between people, politically, spiritually, emotionally. Now, if this is you, where you feel a little skeptical about peace on earth, know that you aren't alone in that feeling. We can all feel like this at times, hopeless and uncertain about what the future holds, and we can become cynical about what Christ offers us. But the problem is, church, under this attitude, our hearts can grow cold. We can become less receptive to God's Word, even to the point of, of being tired of hearing it. Year after year, we enter into the season of Advent, commemorating the birth of Jesus, hoping that this time... His vast promises of peace may be fulfilled. And as always, we look to passages like Micah 5 or prophecies and examples with which we long again for a day that seems unimaginably and terribly delayed. You probably see like these art pieces on Christmas greeting cards of you know, these metaphors of the wolves and the lions and the bears and the sheeps, and they're all together living in peace with one another, and they're led by baby Jesus. And it is a portrait worthy of a Christmas greeting card, and that kind of peace doesn't seem like it's available to us. It seems like it'll never be with all this conflict that we have 
in our world with anger dividing people and nations with so much death and pain in a world where wolves, lions, and bears eat lambs. I mean, it it just seems so abstract. With passages like this one, like Micah 5, where it says it's going to be okay, that there's hope, that there's peace, just what sort of person are we waiting for? Who is this Messiah that will magically make it all better? We need someone to stand up to this injustice. As we know, Jesus stood up for justice. He was selfless. He stood up for the downtrodden in his sermon on the mount. He sided with the poor, the mourners, the hungry, the merciful, and he extended his blessings to them with the healing of the man, I don't know if you remember this, with the withered hand. Jesus did that on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees were furious. They saw that as working on the Sabbath. And instead of backing down, Jesus responds and challenges to the injustice of, a, of this man having to suffer just to uphold the law. How about the woman caught in adultery? The Pharisees and the scribes brought her to Jesus, just curious to see what kind of judgment Jesus will pass on her. She was to be stoned, but Jesus challenged that. Jesus responded to the Canaanite woman. She was part of a different tribe, and the disciples tried to stop her from seeing Jesus, but what does Jesus do? He extends mercy to her. There are countless examples where Jesus embraced the downtrodden, the excluded, the oppressed, the poor. And there are not just these examples of Jesus. Throughout Scripture, in fact, we see the voice of God repeatedly fighting for justice and for peace. It it begins like a, a quiet whisper, and then it gets louder and louder. Then we reach the book of the prophets, and it's really loud. Through those prophets, this is kind of what, if I could summarize it, this is what that longing of peace sounds like, the voice of God. You were made for better days. The strong oppressed the, the weak. The rich pummeled the poor. You were made for better days. Nation goes to war against nation, but I, the Lord, have made you for better days, and I will bring those better days to pass. That's essentially what God is trying to say. And the ancient Jews had a word to describe what those better days were. They called it shalom. Hebrew for peace. In the Bible, God's peace, shalom, meant much more than simply the absence of of war. It indicated a more positive state. And it was more than just, you know, a a, a private transaction between God and I. This longing of God's shalom included things, but for, for the radical Jews, it meant something much bigger, something much broader. It meant wholeness. It meant completeness throughout all creation. It meant the end of injustice. It meant the rich would would no longer devour the poor. It meant that the brokenness would be set right and healed. It meant that people would love one another. Shalom would flow deep and broad, embracing all of creation, including plants and animals and the earth itself. This is the cry and longing and kind of peace that Micah was looking for. 
As the story of the Bible unfolds, God drops these clues that awaken our hearts for these better days. For the Jews, the hope of shalom was wrapped up in a person. Someone is coming, they believe, to open this door of peace. The question was who? Isaiah 9, 6 puts it this way, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 11, 1, it says, God whispers again, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So who is this bearer of shalom? Where will he come from? Micah, you see, remembers this promise. The prophet Micah lived about 700 years before Jesus was born. Micah lived in this mid-sized town called Morsheth. It was about 25 miles south of Jerusalem. And the Hebrew word for prophet literally means to see. And so, like the other prophets, Micah saw things that everyone else wanted to ignore. Micah saw injustice like no other. He records unspeakable violence and injustice. Not only did did this injustice outrage Micah, it also connected him to the promise of better days. God whispered into his ear, Remember, Micah, someone is coming who who will bring peace. And as a result, in his book, though it's short, every now and again you will see uh, these promises for uh, better days, for peace to come all throughout that book. Micah 4.3, it says, Someone who judges between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. Under this person's leadership, the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not stand up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is a beautiful picture of how deep and rich and wide God's shalom, His peace, is. And perhaps many of us echoed this crying for peace when we were younger, and then we got busy and we settled into real life and Who has time to dream about better days when we're not even sure that we're going to make it through today? We have bills to pay. We have kids to drive. We have term papers to finish. We have health problems to resolve and a retirement plan to build. The list of responsibilities keeps going on and on and on. Longing for peace. Longing for justice. Crying for peace. We just don't have the energy anymore. After all, if we looked long and hard at the world around us, we're just going to get depressed and we're going to get cynical. For instance, try this experiment. Purely at random, just pick a copy of the newspaper or even on your news feed online, whatever it may be. How many of those articles relate to the world's longing and aching for peace and justice? I mean, I tried this experiment myself and I got really sad. Uh, it doesn't matter where you, which section you escape to, whether it's sports or entertainment or world events, you can't escape the conflict. No wonder we're cynical. No wonder we stopped our cry for peace. But nevertheless, once in a while, someone whispers to us, you're made for better days. 
You long for peace because there is a peace giver. So let's get into our text tonight. Someone say jump. All right, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. You see, Micah's times were much like ours. Micah 5.1 describes a king who is being publicly humiliated. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek, it says. In verse 3, the prophet describes the time when the nation would be conquered, divided, and sent into exile. Micah compares uh, these days of abandonment to the groaning of a woman in labor. The people in Israel are literally in a war. Micah is writing this in the middle of conflict, in a hopeless and dire situation. Yet, into this violent and seemingly hopeless situation, God will send his peace bearer. So even in, this middle, uh, in the middle of this situation, however dire it may seem, he looks to Bethlehem for hope. So what does our text tell us about this bearer of peace? Well, it tells us this ruler of peace, number one, humbles himself. Humbles himself. Look carefully. Micah warns us because you might miss his coming. When God brings his peace, he will do so quietly. He will do so humbly that you just might miss it. That's the way God's shalom comes. Not with a marching band, not with press coverage, not arrogantly, but quietly to an unlikely people. And God could have, in His very own right, He could have established the Messiah as the ruler of the earth on a throne, but He chose not to in that moment. In Isaiah 11, it says that the Messiah would come like a branch growing out of a dead stump. From death and decay, the peace bringer would arise. Now Micah tells us in Chapter 5, verse 2, that the coming one, the Messiah, will come from a very humble place, Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. It was a small, insignificant town. God could have chosen to come in a throne, but he came to humble Bethlehem instead. Though he comes from an insignificant place, he is nevertheless God's peace giver. Verse 4 of our main passage says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they will live securely, for his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. See here, this is it. How big, how broad, how all-encompassing is God's shalom. This is it. Micah says, and he will be their peace. This is the promised shalom. He's wrapped up in one person. This reality that we're aching and longing for, that seems always out of reach, that seems so distant, he's here. He's wrapped up in the Messiah. But who is it? Who is it? Micah hits a dead end. He knows that this is someone who God will send. 
but he's going to have to wait till Christmas. Jesus is the peace giver. 700 years later, as it's recorded in the New Testament, there's a story about a strange birth. Someone is born, and the clues begin to point to, to, to this direction. Just as Micah predicted, this peace bringer comes from Bethlehem and is fulfilled in Matthew 2. And there's another witness to this. Luke proclaims about the coming one. Luke 1, 78 to 79, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And not only that, He's going to come and there's going to be an entire host of angels and they're going to start singing. Luke says in 2 verse 14, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to all whom God favors. Could it be? Is this the one that all the clues are pointing to? Jesus born in humble Bethlehem. Verses 3 to 5 of our passage says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, of, Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah anticipated a future time, one that was fulfilled in the Babylonian exile and return, and, but it's ultimately going to be fulfilled in the great tribulation and restoration of Israel. God was testing Israel all this time, and the Lord is going to restore them. But I want to bring your attention to verse 4. The ruler born in Bethlehem will tenderly care for his flock. See, not only does the ruler of peace humble himself, Number two, the ruler of peace serves his flock, his bride, his church. John chapter 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. It needs to be understood that the good shepherd doesn't mean simply a good shepherd. He's unique. The Greek word kalos translated good, describes that which is noble, that which is good, wholesome, beautiful, and that's contrasting to that which is wicked, that which is mean, foul, and unlovely. It signifies not only an inward character, but also that which is attractive outwardly. It's an innate goodness. And so using the phrase, the good shepherd, Jesus is referencing his inherent goodness, his righteousness, and his beauty as the shepherd of the sheep. He is the one who protects, who guides, who nurtures his sheep, his flock. Now, in order to better understand the purpose of a shepherd during the times of Jesus, it's helpful to realize that sheep are utterly defenseless. They're, in some ways, I mean, totally useless, and they're dependent on the shepherd. Sheep are always subject to danger. They always have to be under the eye of the shepherd, right? Because anything can happen. There's the heavy rainfalls that come and that can sweep them away. There's robbers that can come and take them. There's wolves that may attack them. David in 1 Samuel tells us that 
you know, he killed a lion and a bear while defending his father's flock when he was a shepherd boy. There's snow in the winter. There's, you know, dust and sands in the summer. There's long, lonely hours in the day that you're just waiting there looking at the sheep. All these the shepherd patiently endures for the welfare of his flock. In fact, some shepherds were even exposed to danger, sometimes giving up their own lives to protect the sheep. Likewise, Jesus gave his life on the cross, the good shepherd for his own. He would save others, though he had the power, did not choose to save himself. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Through his willing sacrifice, the Lord made salvation possible for all those who put their faith and trust in him. In proclaiming that he is the good shepherd, Jesus speaks of laying down his life for his sheep. John 10, 15 says, Just as my Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. Seven, verses 17 to 18 of the same passage says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus' death was divinely appointed. It is only through Him that we receive salvation. He is the Good Shepherd, and He knows the sheep, and He knows them intimately. Jesus makes it clear that it wasn't just the Jews that he laid his, his life down for. He also laid his life down for the Gentiles. In that same passage, he says, The other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. Jesus is the good shepherd over both the Jew and the Gentile to all who believe in him. I always found it ironic that Jesus, uh, or sorry, the angels would reveal themselves to the shepherds uh, and proclaim the message of Jesus to them. And then the shepherds will make their way to the good shepherd. So yes, Jesus serves his flock. Now continuing to verse 6 of our main passage, it says, They shall shepherd the land of Syria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Did you catch that? The ruler of peace is a deliverer. Not only will Jesus literally de deliver Israel from pagan nations, but this deliverer will deliver his people from a different war. The war between sinful people and a holy God. You see, not only did Jesus humble himself, not only did he certain not only does he serve the church, the ruler of peace delivers us from sin. That's the third point of the sermon. The ruler of peace delivers us from sin. Around the globe, on Christmas Eve, followers of Jesus will celebrate the coming of the peace God intended for creation, once lost because of sin and longed for by all creation, has come Jesus. He's the one Micah pronounced who would be our our peace. It sounds abstract, it sounds impersonal, and, and you may wonder, how does this affect my life? 
For me, in my fourth year of school, I met Nate. Now, Nate was a classmate, and he was taking the same courses that I was, and I was living as a follower of Jesus, and Nate had grown up in a Christian home, and he had become a full-fledged atheist. He was spending most of his time playing video games, and he had been resentful to the people at, uh, at, at the church that he grew up in, and because they had passed judgment on others, and there would be fighting amongst the members, and to him it seemed all hypocritical. And Nate asked me, so why are you Christian? What difference does it really make? Why don't you do something that is really worthwhile in your life? Why don't you start a tech company or something? And I can't remember exactly what I said to Nate in that moment. But if I could have that conversation again, I'd respond like this with two simple points. First, I need peace with God. I wanted peace to be everywhere in the world, but the message of Jesus is this. The transformation of peace that started on the first Christmas means that peace has to start within my heart. I can't be an effective instrument of peace until I find peace within the relationship with God. According to the biblical story, everything Jesus did, including living, teaching, dying on the cross, and raising again from the dead, was designed to reconcile us to God the Father. The Bible tells us that our relationship with God was not at peace. A matter of fact, it t the Bible tells us that we are at war with God. We are not the victims in this story here. We're the rebels, and we need to learn to lay our arms down and surrender if we are to ever find hope, if we are to ever find peace. That's why the New Testament declares so wildly and joyfully that peace has been offered. Romans 5.1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul, who writes here, as a Jew, he was steeped in the story of the Bible and including, the, you know, he knew all about shalom. He knew about the promises in Isaiah, in Micah. But Paul resisted the good news for a long time, but then Jesus broke into his heart. And Paul knew that Jesus was the promised peace bearer he knew about from Scripture. You see, unless I am at peace with God, I'm not part of the solution. I'm still part of the problem. But in Jesus, I can become a peacemaker in this world. I can be an instrument of peace in my... Uh, I can be an instrument of God's peace. Following Jesus is not simply a matter of enjoying peace in my heart or this relationship I have with God. The Messiah calls us to join his movement of bringing shalom to the world. As a follower of Jesus, I am now called to announce the good news that others need to be reconciled to this holy God. We begin the peacemaking journey in our homes, in our neighborhoods and families. Peace doesn't mean the absence of conflict. It means working through the conflict to bring peace into our relationships. We stand up for those who are treated with injustice. We ask for the Messiah to bring peace into our city, into our community, into our country. 
being a peacemaker under Jesus' reign also prepare, uh, propels us to live by hope. By ourselves, if we were left to our own devices, we could never finish the job of peacemaking. We build all these programs. We, we build all these institutions, these hospitals and schools. We start movements and initiatives, but they tend to run down and grow corrupt. And all our efforts are partial at best, and at worst, they are deeply flawed filled with our own ego and unmet needs. But King Jesus, the Messiah, promises to finish that job. That's why when people ask, you know, why can't we just bypass all this, you know, peace with God stuff and get right on to helping people and the lovey-dovey Jesus? Jesus is love, no doubt. But there's the bad news first, church. The Bible reminds us that we're sinners with crippling limitations, but God has a plan, and God will bring His peace. Revelation 21, 1-3 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What a peaceful scene that is. What a hope we have to look forward to, church. Notice, too, that the call from Jesus to be a peacemaker is incredibly hopeful. God doesn't call for the perfect or the, unbro uh, the unbroken to be peacemakers. Isaiah 4, 6-7 says that God chooses the lame, the outcast. The Messiah brings shalom to the earth and He calls us to join Him. But He doesn't call the perfect. He calls the wounded. And that's good news because in many ways, myself, I'm wounded. I struggle with my own failings, weaknesses, insecurities. In fact, this upcoming week, I'm having an elective surgery. And I've been extremely anxious about it. I was telling some of the people in my life group. So in many ways, I am preaching about the peace of God to myself. The timeliness of even preparing this sermon speaks to how God works. Like these topics were picked way in advance. So this is how the Lord works. He tests, He refines us to make us more like Him. And in His right time, He teaches us these lessons. Church, as I close, and you reflect in this season of Advent, as you prepare to whatever you do, light candles or sing old Christmas songs or spend time in prayer and fasting and whatever it is you do, I want to ask you this. Do you have peace with God? Do you know in your heart that you are right with God through Jesus Christ? Are you reconciled to Him? Do you know God's call in your life to be a peacemaker? Our cry for peace is fulfilled in the ruler of peace, Jesus Christ. There's a quote that I just want to end with, and it's something that we've, it's a quote that we've definitely said here before. No God, no peace. 
But if you know God, you'll know peace. Know God, know peace. But know God, and you'll know peace. So I ask that uh, now, church, that we respond to God's invitation as we enter a time of communion. So let's, uh, let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you have given to us to teach us from your very word about who you are. We thank you for your majesty, Lord, that even though you came down humbly, you are the ruler of peace. There is enmity between us sinners and you, but Jesus, you came to bridge us together to a right relationship with you. And so in this Advent season as a church, I pray that we would get our hearts right, Lord. We, we would fix our eyes on you. Lord, would you have your way within us? I pray, God, that we would be empowered by your Spirit to live these things out, to be peacemakers on this earth, but only after we have that relationship with you. Because without you, God, there's no peace. We can't even know peace without you. And so we pray for this. God, if there's anything that we have done that has forsake you or that has brought shame to your sight, I pray that we would come to you in repentance, God, so that we can have peace with you. We ask these things in Jesus, your mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.